more I get to know the Lord, the more I understand his word and his character, the more I'm absolutely blown away by his love for his people and the significance of the local church. I mean, it is, it is mind-blowing. The more you dive into this word and the more you, you, you recognize that he truly has designed this gospel family to be the most significant expression of the most significant force and purpose in the universe. That is, it sounds like it's a wild statement, but I'm telling you, it cannot be overstated. Like he actually fills you with his spirit and he calls you the expression of his body on the earth. That's the local church. Like you are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. You are the sound of his voice and the expression on his face. You are the warmth of his embrace to each other and the world around you. This is what he set up upon the earth. This is why he said it's better that I go that the spirit may come and fill you. This is why, as J.D. Greer put it, that the spirit inside of you is better than Jesus beside of you. That is a wild thought. And yet that is the biblical reality that we stand on. So it doesn't mean that you're perfect. But it does mean that you're perfectly loved, and if you've received his grace through faith in Jesus Christ, it means that you've been called to live as a conduit of that perfect love and grace to the world around you. That's powerful. So this morning, we're continuing through the book of Revelation in our series called Victory Unveiled. And so we've come to chapter 16, which portrays a series of seven bowls representing God's judgment being poured out on the earth. And yes... It is as intense as it sounds, right? It's so intense that there's actually an entire chapter that's devoted to preparing us for what's coming in chapter 16, right? We talked about this last week. It's like God knows we need to be reminded of his goodness and faithfulness in the midst of it all because he knows we have a tendency to focus on only what we can see versus the bigger truths of the unseen. And so he gives us this preparation Because he knows that we can tend to only look at the cross and forget about the empty tomb. Amen? So we just uh, sang about. So last week, chapter 15 was our reminder that his deeds are great and amazing and his ways are true and just. In other words, he is trustworthy and righteous in all that he does. So as we dive in here, I want to remember what we're reading. This is not just a book of doom and gloom, right? This is, this is not a book that was just religious tyrants writing to scare people into behaving a certain way. I know that it's been twisted throughout hu- history by human people that have tried to exploit it for their own vain purposes to that end, right? We've seen that. That's called taking God's name in vain. He don't like it very much. Right? But that's not what this book is. That's not what Christianity or the local church is about. In fact, this book, Revelation and the Bible in general, is written to Christians as an encouragement of hope in the midst of extremely difficult circumstances. The book of Revelation is actually a letter that the Apostle John wrote to the early churches of the first century during an extreme time of political upheaval and persecution. But again, this is no ordinary letter. Right? It's the prophetic account of a very real supernatural experience that the Apostle John had 2,000 years ago. And through this letter and the Holy Spirit, we're invited to experience this very relevant revelation for ourselves today. So John is taken up into the Spirit as God pulls back the physical veil and reveals who is actually in control of all eternity, of all that's happening to them then and us now today. So it's a letter that's designed to encourage the church in difficult circumstances and show them that Christ has the ultimate victory, no matter what it might seem like in the world around them then and us now. It's the reminder that if you are in Christ, you've been rescued, redeemed, equipped, empowered, and commissioned to bring salvation to those who are drowning in a sinful and chaotic world. And it's important to remember that this letter has a specific context written to a specific people at a specific time with a specific purpose, which means it has a specific meaning. 
And the only way to understand that meaning is to understand it in its context. In other words, this is not a letter that was given to the first century church just for the sake of passing it to a generation that will be alive thousands of years later just before Jesus returns. That's not the point of this letter at all, right? This letter was written to them in the first century, and its relevance to us is only applied through the lens of how relevant it was for them then. So we can't make it mean something for us now that it couldn't mean or couldn't have meant to them then. That's important to understand, right? So when we realize how directly applicable and relevant it was for them then, we'll also treasure this vision for us today. In fact, this letter has been digested and cherished by God's people for almost two millennia as a major source of encouragement and hope for all believers, not doom and gloom, okay? you got to get this. So the history attached to this letter is actually as encouraging as the letter itself, honestly. Like, it's only recently been incorrectly understood by some as an irrelevant book about the future. And unfortunately, that's how many people view Revelation today, right? You think Revelation, you think something that's going to happen in the future, but that's not what it's about, Yes, there are future things in it, absolutely. In fact, we're going to read a lot of that today. But as I've mentioned before, if your theology categorizes any book of the Bible as irrelevant to you, it's time to question your theology, right? So the reality is that this letter has always been a major revelation of truth, hope, and courage for God's beloved people in every generation, including ours. And I would even say especially ours. The thing about Revelation, though, is that its structure is recursive, okay? In other words, it's a, a, a book, for example, like Genesis or, or the Gospels and most of the other letters in the New Testament, um, they're all linear in their progression of events, of thoughts and themes. Like, it goes chronological in a sense, right? It uses here though, Revelation circles back on events and major themes over and over and over again, and it develops those events and themes from different angles and different perspectives. It uses visions to expand and expound upon particular issues and events of both the past, present, and future. And so we're just over halfway through this letter, for example, right? And we've already seen Jesus come back, and the end of history has taken place multiple times already, right? We're just over halfway through it. And every time, it's really intense. Every time we see it in here, it's an extremely intense thing, but it's not necessarily as impossible to understand as many think it is because it's preceded by an entire Bible of context and history which bring clarity, color, meaning, and content to what we're reading. So we're going to lean into the Holy Spirit. We're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture and worship the Lord with our, our heart, mind. Somebody say mind. Soul and strength. All right? So we're going to lean into this. Um, if it feels like you're just kind of overwhelmed by information and, and it's just sort of all over your head, maybe this is your first time this morning and you're used to just somebody coming, you know, Jesus loves you, happy clappy, goodbye, Right? Um, and you're like, I thought church was just something you endured so you can go to lunch afterwards. Um, <laughs> welcome to Risen Church. That's not what we do. Um, but I, I want you to just kind of lean into the relationships around you in the midst of this. Lean into the people. We want to get to know you. We want to walk with you in this journey, okay? This is not something that if all of this stuff just clicks with you in every aspect, Come talk to me because I want to learn from you, right? Like, so this is a thing that we look at and we magnify the beauty and grace of what has been revealed as a people that are looking to God to worship him together. Does that make sense? All right. So ultimately, though, um, you know, we want to get to know you. We want to walk with you this, and uh, your journey, on your journey with Jesus. And so ultimately, we all need to hear this. This is not just some empty philosophies or theoretical conjectures or opinions. This is God's word, and it's directly applicable to our everyday life. So with all that said, this morning, we've come to Revelation chapter 16. 
which reveals another one of those recursive cycles, or the theological term is recapitulation, right? When you hear that, just think recap. It's probably a little more palatable, right, for us to grab. Just think, when you hear recapitulation, just think recap. And so what we see is another recapitulation of the time frame between Christ's first and second coming. We've already seen this in the seven seals that were opened. Then we saw it in the seven trumpets that were blown. And then here we begin the next series of seven judgments that are known as the seven bowls of wrath that are poured out. And again, it is intense. It's as intense as it sounds, right? And so they all describe, each one of these series, these three series of seven judgments, all describe different aspects and increasing levels of God's judgment that occur during the same time period. They reveal the common themes of history during this inner Advent period, which Advent means appearing. So it's his first appearing and his second appearing, or his first coming and his second coming. And they describe the struggles and the troubles that plague the world with corruption, death, famine, poverty, disease, pollution, and demonic torment. And God is the one who unleashes these judgments upon a very, um, or, or upon every sphere of creation that's been affected by human sin. That's what we're seeing. So remember that humanity was originally given dominion over creation to take care of creation, to take care of the earth and steward it. So each judgment that we see here exposes our utter failure because we tried to rule in God's place rather than by his authority. And so each of these judgments reveals the true nature of this fallen world, like handwriting on the walls of creation, declaring that things aren't as they should be. But we live in a world that tries to ignore that writing on the wall or can't make sense of it. And so Revelation is a wake-up call that's given to the church. It's an encouragement to those who have been awakened to new life and given those gospel glasses by the Holy Spirit to see and interpret the writing on the wall for the rest of creation. This is our role. Revelation unveils the reality that the only thing keeping Jesus from coming back in full glory to eradicate wickedness and inaugurate heaven upon the earth, the only thing stopping him from doing that, the only reason that you are drawing breath in this world right now is his mercy towards those who would still repent and receive his grace. That's it. But it also reveals, especially in our passage today, that this world will not last forever. And the time is actually getting shorter and shorter. And so here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. You ready? For the love of God and people, break the silence and introduce Jesus. For the love of God and people, break the silence and introduce Jesus. Most of you already know what that means. That resonates heavy in a world that has silenced the gospel, right? But we're going to keep preaching anyway. Turn with me to Revelation 16. I'm going to read through verse 1 through 11, and then we're going to drop back, and we're going to walk through the uh, five, the first five of these seven bowls together, all right? So I'm, I feel like I'm losing my voice here. <clears throat> I'm yelling at my kids too much. Forgive me, Lord. Revelation 16. You guys ready? Here we go. Revelation 16, verse 1 through 11. Uh, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing that died was in the sea. Or, sorry, every living thing died that was in the sea. Verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. 
And I heard the altar, I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So, We've been in this series for a while now, and I want you to know that the intensity here is not lost on me. You need to know that I do not read this with just cold indifference. And I think, honestly, this is so heavy that without the reminder of God's goodness and his grace, I catch myself, even as I'm going through this, I catch my own heart trying to disconnect, right? Like it's easy just to try to detach and distance myself from it like it's some kind of like intellectual exercise or a, or a weekly book report that I'm supposed to give. Because without the reminder of God's sovereign grace and goodness, my own heart can't handle this stuff without hardening it's like a coping mechanism of sheer self-preservation when you see the intensity of this. But by his spirit and by his grace, and when you lean into it, this, again, this is why this chapter was preceded with a reminder of who he is, of his goodness and his righteousness. Because without that, man, revelation, it'll harden you. It'll bring up every insecurity in you. But this revelation, when you recognize the grace that he's offered, when you recognize his sovereign goodness in it all, revelation doesn't harden your heart with insecurity. It softens and it matures you with hope and courage, steadfast, foundations that are immovable, okay? And so I want to lean into that by his spirit and by his grace because ultimately this is a vision of God's glory. This is a vision of his goodness. This is a vision of his righteousness. This is a vision of his justice. And it's actually even a vision of his grace. Okay? So let's drop back and we're going to walk through these first five bowls. Verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So this sounds a lot like one of the plagues that God sent on Egypt in the book of Exodus chapter 9. If you remember that, Israel, God's people, was held in slavery in Egypt, and he sent a bunch of plagues to have them released, and this looks like one of them, right? This, this first one. Um, painful sores coming upon the people. And so those plagues then were designed to make Egypt release God's people from slavery. It was, it, it, and so it also sounds like what was revealed in the fifth trumpet, in the trumpet judgments before, right? In Revelation chapter 9, where the people were psychologically and emotionally tormented by something demonic that was likened to the sting of a scorpion. So we see this. We've seen it. And so ultimately, this is a portrayal of the agony experienced by all who have turned away from the one who offers life. That's what we're seeing here. Verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. So again, this bowl points back both to the second trumpet and the plague against Egypt that turned the Nile River to blood. In Exodus, we see the same thing. It's pointing back to the same aspects of judgment and, and that are coming from God. But this judgment is different in a way. This judgment affects every living thing in the sea, all of it. Whereas the second judgment only affected a portion of the sea, 
So what we see here is that the scope and scale of what's being portrayed in this vision is all-consuming. This isn't just a partial judgment. The implication here is total and comprehensive. So this is like a big picture, 35,000-foot view of decreation. That's what we're seeing here, right? So we're seeing elements of both the seal and the trumpet judgments that we walked through earlier. The first two of those judgments, we're seeing those encompassed here because we're giving this all-encompassing view of it all. That's what this is. So remember, the trumpet judgments gave us a vision of when only a portion of the sea was polluted. But here we see that God's good judgment upon the sea progresses to completion. Like in the world that we live in now, only a part of the sea is actually under judgment. Only a part of the sea is polluted and embittered and toxic. Only some of the fish have crazy chemicals that are like messing with us, right? Like this is a picture here of God's righteous judgment upon a sinful world who has rejected their God-given role to steward creation. And the implication of all three series of recursive judgments is that they will increase in their scope and intensity. That intensity may be spread out across the globe. It will be more intense in different times and in different places. Remember, this is Revelation. We're getting different pictures of the same time period. And so it'll hone in on one aspect of one uh, of the time period and one angle, and then it'll drop back and we'll get a big picture view, right? Like the camera that floats around the football stadium, right? And it's like back in there and honing in on the quarterback, and then it drops back, and it gives you the history of the running back, and then it drops back, and it's like Goodyear blimp status, and it sees everything, right? We're in Goodyear blimp status. That's what we're seeing here. So um, the implication, again, here is the increasing in its intensity. And so as I've mentioned before in this series, one of the most profound prophetic images that we're given in Scripture of the end times is that of a woman experiencing birth pains as she longs for deliverance and the promised child. Right? The contractions of creation increase in scope and intensity as we approach active labor and delivery. Some of you, that hits a little harder than others. I'm probably the only person in the hospital that was thinking of the end times as my children were being born. <laughs> right? Well, maybe, maybe the women were like, the world is ending. Um, <laughs> but this is, but in some ways, that's true, right? Like, but there's also new life that comes through the promise. It's beautiful. The Bible is packed with this meta-narrative, like a prophetic framework that undergirds what's being presented here through these recursive judgments upon the earth. So verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So again, this bowl echoes the plague on the Nile River in Exodus 7. And the third trumpet also is echoed here that's from Revelation 8. We're seeing this again. It's likely that it refers to also um, the suffering of those who rely on sort of like nautical import and export, right? And sources of fresh water in their region for their own prosperity or economic prosperity. Like remember that this is in, in the ancient world. Economic prosperity relied upon these rivers and these springs, okay? So follow this because I'm we're getting, we got to get your head into the context of this to understand it. So we see that. And again, the plague on Egypt and the partial judgment of the third trumpet was God's mercy designed to produce repentance on the part of those who received it. But this is a clear declaration that this judgment will eventually be total in its scope and scale. In other words, it's all the waters. It's the reminder that although God is extremely long-suffering, that his mercy upon a rebellious world does, in fact, have a time limit. And while his mercy is extended, the bowls of his justice and wrath are being filled. Because remember, mercy doesn't forgive. Mercy only sets justice aside for a little while. Grace is where justice and mercy meet. Does that make sense? Because justice was poured out on Jesus. 
This is that powerful gospel. This is what we surround ourselves and immerse ourselves and stand upon. Right? This is... And, and it's righteous. Like, you've got to see the righteousness of this action. It's repeated over and over and over again. And notice that the personified representative of the waters is on board with it all. This angel that's in charge of the waters, right, he's not upset, right? It's as though creation itself is crying out for this judgment, Right, this angel says, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. It's not exactly a Hallmark card scripture, right? But the point is taken. And then in verse 7, it reminds us of the fifth seal. Remember this? In the fifth seal, there was a revelation, and we saw under the altar of God the prayers of the saints who were slain, the martyrs crying out, How long, O oh Lord? Let's go back and look at it. In Revelation 6, verse 9 through 10, in the first sort of uh, recursive cycles of judgment, the fifth seal that was unveiled to us revealed this. When he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. In other words, you're good. We trust you. We're face to face with you. You're awesome. But I got a question. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What we are seeing here is God's answer to those cries. This is justice, and it's good. And the church over the generations has been encouraged by this passage for the past 2,000 years. No creature, angels included, who have a real understanding of God's goodness questions the validity of this wrath. There are no apologies. There are no hesitations. This is just, and it is good. Anything else has a low view of God and a high view of humanity. Anything else, any other view does not understand the weight of even the smallest sin against a holy God, which is why they can't grasp the extent of his mercy and grace in Christ, nor even their need for it. You see this? This is why without this, people don't understand the cross or the gospel. And it's not that we're like going around telling everybody, oh, you're all condemned and we're better than you. We're looking down our nose. No, we're saying we deserve this just like anybody else. Praise God for what he's done at the cross. That's what we're doing. It's a testimony. It's a witness. This is the gospel, that God became a man. He lived the life we could not live, and he died the death we all deserve to die. And he conquered death in the grave, and he paved the way to God, for, to the Father for eternity, eternal life through the resurrection. And it's eternal life that doesn't just start one day when we die. It starts now through the infilling and indwelling of his Holy Spirit, Right? This is relationship. This is who the church is. This is who Christians are. This is how we're defined. It's our identity as sons and daughters of the Most High King, friends of God, redeemed, rescued, renewed every day. It's beautiful. Verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. And they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. So again, remember the reason these judgments were limited uh, before was God's mercy for the sake of repentance so that people would recognize their fallenness and receive his grace through faith in Christ. But instead, what we see here is defiance to the bitter end. And yet, even here, there is this underlying presentation of God's grace. Like, think back to Revelation 7, verse 16, which gives us this vision of believers who have endured the fallen state of this world. He's talking about you if you're in Christ, right? And their faith, though, 
even in the midst of this fallen world, our faith is in the coming kingdom as citizens of the kingdom of heaven rather than citizens of the earth. We're those who are grafted into the family of God by the blood of the lamb. And this is what it says in Revelation 7, verse 16. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. So remember, again, this is an agrarian society near the desert. Scorching heat brought with it famine and poverty. And these were regular realities that are beyond people's and humanity's control, right? And so as believers in this world, we also may experience this kind of suffering. But for us, catch this, this is why the prosperity gospel is crazy, catch this, for us, it produces repentance and a confession of where our true source of life comes from. So while it produces, though, in the others, right? So for us, our hope is not in this world or the prosperity of this life, but from the king and the kingdom that is to come. So while it produces deep bitterness in the hearts of the unbeliever or the citizens of the earth, right? It produces a longing in the hearts of the citizens of heaven who are sojourners in a land that is not our own. That doesn't mean that God doesn't want to prosper you and care for you and give you good things in this world. He does. He loves you. But even if he doesn't, it is a blessing because it allows you to hold the things of this world with an open hand and long for the truth of the kingdom that's coming. That's why it is mess. It is garbage to look to this world as our best life now. It's not if, it, if this is your best life now, your hope, your bar is like way down here. Because you were created for so much more. And so for those who understand that and get that, instead of creating bitter resentment when we deal with suffering, it reminds us to hold on to the things of this world with an open hand and cling to the kingdom and the king of heaven, right? Where, as Isaiah 49.10 put it, they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity or compassion on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. Remember, Revelation 12 presented the context of the church in our present form today as God's people living in a wilderness world in the desert pursued by the devil but nourished, nurtured, protected, and matured by God himself as we long for Christ's return and access to the ultimate promised land of heaven on earth. That's what our hope is, right? And it's not some begrudging state of sadness. Like, that's, that's also, like, when you're just like, oh, it's so hard and all this. Like, it's okay to not be okay. I get it. But that's not Christianity, that's not the hope that we have that is alive and present. In fact, the vision of the church is one of great joy. When we see who Christ's people are, even on the earth, like, yeah, there's some mourning going on for sure, right? People are real in their struggle, and yet at the same time, the vision of the church is one of great joy and gladness, even in the midst of it all. Like, this is the actual context, by the way, of Ephesians 4.13, right? Right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? Man, that thing gets twisted all the time. Right? The actual context of Ephesians 4.13, let's look at it. Ephesians 4.12-13 through 13 says this, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What's the secret? The love of God in Christ is enough. And he'll use it all for good. And I can trust him. And I can lean into him. That verse does not mean if you believe hard enough, you can win that championship or get that job or achieve greatness. That's not what it means. Right? The context is whether you succeed or fail. Whether you want what you want to happen happens, right, or it doesn't. Your joy isn't contingent upon your circumstances. Your joy is in Christ and can never be taken from you. That's what it is. 
Now, I'm not knocking Tim Tebow. I actually think he's actually done a pretty good job of exhibiting that in a world full of ups and downs, and his joy has been pretty constant, right? You know, he, he put Ephesians 4.13, and he's like, I'm going to run that touchdown. And Anyway, I love him. I actually do think he's used that in context in the overall picture, but people get it twisted very often. Amen? So now you won't. So, again, no matter how it feels, this is the joy of Christ, and it's only available to those who understand the context of this fallen world and the utter sufficiency of his grace in every circumstance, no matter how it feels. It's always the firm foundation of truth that's unmoved by this world. So verse 10, here we go. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. So remember, the beast from chapter 13 is this massive, satanically driven antichrist system or kingdom that transcends any one person or any one earthly nation. This isn't just something that's going to happen in the future. It's been happening for the past 2,000 years, okay? It's the monstrous system of opposition to the message and mission of Christ and his people. And it has manifested on the earth throughout history as any system of power and or individual representative that asserts itself against the people of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? And so this is what the church that's reading this then and the church you and I today are up against in this world. The beast. The beast is the underlying satanic force of oppression that's raged against the church for generations. And so here we see that its time has come to an end. And its kingdom is plunged into darkness. It was God's mercy towards those who indulged the beast to begin with. But mercy is not grace, as we said, right? Mercy means that wrath is still coming. And all the while, the cup of God's wrath was being filled. And here we see it being poured out. And the things get very real here. It says, people gnawed their tongues in anguish. That is visceral. And cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. So there it is again. Deep agony and unrepentant bitterness towards God. So it's clear that darkness here is a symbolic term for a lot more than just the absence of light. What we're seeing here is another allusion to the plagues on Egypt from Exodus 10. Egypt wouldn't repent and release God's people from slavery, and so God covered them in darkness for three days. Now, that was more than just an inconvenience for Egypt because they believed that the Pharaoh or their king was an incarnation of the sun god, Ra. Really important, which means that this was a blatant dismissal of the authority of Egypt's rule and reign. It was a breaking. It was a breaking in of the kingdom of God. It was a direct assault on Pharaoh's throne and authority, sending their kingdom into chaos and confusion. And a literal interruption, or I'm sorry, not interruption. Yeah, it was an interruption to their reign and and their light with darkness. And so understanding that as just like a a, a literal interpretation here for darkness um, doesn't account for the intense agony and the gnawing of their tongues. Because this is spiritual darkness. There's very much, I mean, it probably alludes to physical manifestations of it too, but it's clearly a spiritual darkness and their final and total separation from the light of God. Again, his mercy upon the present state of the world will not last forever. In this present world, God's goodness shines both on the wicked and the righteous, but it will not always be like that. And that's what's being presented here. This this present state has been allowed by his mercy for the sake of receiving his grace through repentance and belief in Christ. Again, the only reason Jesus hasn't returned is simply because of his mercy towards those who would receive his grace in Christ. That's what it is. This is supposed to be a sobering message to the church. You realize this is written to the church. It's addressed to the church. Right? This isn't a scare tactic to the lost. It's sobering. If you don't know Jesus, this probably should shake you, right? But more than that, I want you to see here that this is written to the church, and it's easy to read this and think that wrath is only reserved for the exceptionally bad people. Like, this wrath, this thing is is reserved for, like, murderers and rapists. 
That's how the world assumes this. And, and, and it's like, or just the people that killed Christians. And yes, you know what? It is for them. But the point of the gospel message is that everyone, all of humanity has sinned against the holy God and stands condemned under his very righteous and good wrath. And God shows no partiality in that. That means serial killers stand condemned alongside your coworker who just thinks the whole religion thing isn't for him. He stands condemned too. It means that the, those weird Satanists who sacrifice goats and chant incantations, right, that they stand condemned. But so does your roommate from college who thinks Jesus was just a kind teacher like Buddha or Krishna or just one form of religion. Or your friend who grew up around church and thinks that they're a Christian because their parents are. They stand condemned too. Humanity doesn't stand condemned because they stand out from the crowd in their wickedness. Humanity stands condemned because we stand out from Jesus in our wickedness. That's where our condemnation comes from. Remember, this vision is given to the church. The vision is given to those who've experienced the one thing that matters, the grace of God in Christ. The gospel can be summed up in four words. Remember this, Jesus in my place. That is the gospel. It's deeply profound, and yet, there it is. Simple. This is our great commission to make disciples this is how the church conquers the enemy according to Revelation 12, 11, right? By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death because Jesus is in my place. We live in a world where the simple gospel message has been so twisted and perverted that the very idea of talking about Jesus becomes paralyzing even to people who adore him, right? You need to know that God is not surprised by that. Like the name of Jesus is powerful and heavy for a reason. You bring up Jesus at a party and people start listening and get nervous. Right? We should be a people that that's just natural because he is our king. And it doesn't mean the party's going to stop. It actually means the, the real party can begin. Right? This world's developed an entire unspoken code in opposition to it. Talking about Jesus is taboo in a world that has utterly rejected him. But that's exactly what you've been called and commissioned to do, to break the silence. That's not just get him here so I can tell him about it. You've been commissioned. You've been filled with his spirit. If you've got a, if you experience grace, then you've got a testimony and it's just as powerful as mine. In fact, you've been strategically positioned in every single one of your relationships to this end for his glory. This isn't the only way we glorify him, but in many ways it's the best way in this time. Right? If you don't think that that, per that person or that family member or that friend knows Jesus or is actually saved, then just ask him. But that might offend them. So? I mean, seriously, so if you love them, express that you love them. That's why you're asking. And, and, and if they're like, but you, what, you think I'm a bad person? Great opportunity to share the actual gospel that's not about works. Does that make sense? You see what I'm saying? If somebody's offended because you're questioning their salvation, anyway, that's not in my notes. Yeah. I got to hurry up. <laughs> The point here, though, is for the love of God and people, break the silence and introduce Jesus. You can do it lovingly. You really can. You don't have to be the bullhorn preacher that's just condemning everybody. That's not what it's about. Never has been. That's the people that are a works-righteous-oriented, performance-oriented group, right? This thing's about grace. It's about love. Welcome him into the conversations that you're having with your family and your friends and your coworkers. Enter into the conversations God's been having with others and let his spirit bring it all back to the cross. Just lavish the glory and goodness of God and the heart of, behind all of it. In fact, that's what evangelism really is, right? Like it's entering into the conversation that God's already been having with lost people. That's evangelism. That's sharing the gospel. So many times people think that they're Christians and through a simple five-minute conversation, it doesn't take much to realize that Nobody's really taking the time to explain who Jesus actually is. 
right? Or what he actually did for them. And so this is the opportunity. So you've been commanded and commissioned and empowered to break the silence, to invite people in and to share life in Christ, the risen Lord. There's an old song that was written by Simon and Garfunkel. (laughs) It's been recently redone by a group called Disturbed. And every time I hear it, it's disturbing. Because the songs, it's called song, the, the Sound of Silence. You guys remember this one? Sound of Silence? Now, I don't think that they had any intention uh, of writing about the need to break the silence and share the gospel in this. In fact, I, I heard an interview um, th- that, uh, with him, and he said he really didn't even know what he was writing or why he was writing it. He just sat alone in a closet, and uh, the words kind of came to him. Um, but here's what he wrote. Listen to this. And in the naked light I saw... 10,000 people, maybe more, people talking without speaking, people hearing without listening, people writing songs that voices never share, and no one dared disturb the sound of silence. Whew. Fools, said I, you do not know. Silence like a cancer grows. Hear my words that I might teach you. Take my arms that I might reach you. But my words like silent raindrops fell and echoed in the wells of silence. And the people bowed and prayed to the neon God they made. And the sign flashed out its warning in the words that it was forming. And the sign said, the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls and tenement halls and whispered in the sound of silence. Romans 10, verse 13 through 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how do they believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And I love this part. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? In other words, you're sent. Those who have experienced it are the only people who can bring it. As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We live in a society of silence when it comes to the Jesus of the Bible. And this silence, like a cancer, grows. This is why we exist to share life in Christ, our risen Lord, with each other and our city. You're naturally supernatural people. You are fluent in the gospel. You see his glory and you see his redemption in everything and anything. And it's one of my, I got to tell you guys, if you feel like I'm chastising you, I want you to hear, I am so thankful for this group of people who do this constantly. I love it. I love the way you talk about the glory of God on the beach and in the coffee shops and in your marketplaces. It's everywhere. You are gospel-fluent people. I love that. Jesus is on the tips of your tongues all the time. So many of you are quick to pray over each other, and you're quick to marvel at the glory of God in every little thing, and everything you do is like dropping gospel bombs right on the enemy's face every single time. This past week, my wife's 96-year-old grandma went to be with Jesus, and we packed up the kids and drove to Butler, Pennsylvania for the funeral. Long drive. <laughs> um, she loved Jesus, right? So it was a celebration for those who really understood that, but not everybody did. In fact, my wife was very close with her gram, as she called her. This is one of those. coming. It was pretty raw still. And she was asked to say a few things, but the person who spoke before her was an atheist, and all he could talk about was her past. And it was funny, and it was good, and it was, you know, whatever. But when my wife got up, she got up after him, and she not only spoke about her Graham's past, but she talked about her glorious present and her eternal future. It was starkly different. And here's a little bit of what she said. I'm going to try and get through it because, whew, I was like, that's my wife. Too often our culture has accepted the premise that a homemaker is, non, is a non-important role, one who makes a casserole and organizes closets. Yet her role impacted all of us far more than we realize. Her home nurtured, fed, provided rest, gave shelter and acceptance. She was preaching a sermon to us all about the love, uh, gentle kindness, and freedom to come as you are to our Savior. And for that, I'm forever grateful. And yet these things that I love in her find their ultimate fullness in Christ. She had a hard life. Just like everyone in here, she experienced the brokenness of this world and was a broken part of this world. And just like me and you and everyone in here, she needed the grace of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. 
be encouraged. Her life still sings the song of the redeemed from the grave. And for those who are in Christ, this is just a temporary separation until we sing the song of the redeemed together forever. Woo! I quote the whole thing if I could. It was powerful. But Graham's death was the clear and present writing on the wall that this world is destined for judgment. That's why death is so heavy. We're all headed in that direction. It's why I'm tearing up even though I know she's with Jesus. It's because we weren't meant for death. Death is not natural. And Hannah broke the silence and read the writing on the wall for all to hear and pointed straight to the God of grace. You see, death, like all of these judgments, is not what we were designed for. There's nothing natural about it. In fact, it was an open casket that we prepared our kids for. But when our oldest son saw her body, man, whew, you could see the weight of it on his face. Death was unavoidably in his face. And it was a clear picture of what our circumstance was. And his eyes he just stared at her, and they started tearing up. And I said, you okay? Looked at him, you okay, buddy? And he just stared and said, quote, I don't know what to say. That's what he said. So I grabbed my little seven-year-old's hands and looked him in the eyes and I said, buddy, it's okay to not be okay. Her soul is with Jesus, but we weren't made for this. We weren't made to die. It's okay to be upset. The heaviness of it all is what makes us look to Jesus. We don't just ignore it. It's the reminder of why we need him. Asher just nodded and hugged me. And then we thank God for the cross and resurrection. Break the silence. I'm going to close with a quote from John Piper. He said this, The greatest cause in the world is joyfully rescuing people from hell, meeting their earthly needs, making them glad in God, and doing it with a kind, serious pleasure that makes Christ look like the treasure he is. Let's pray. God, we thank you. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. God, we thank you for the empty tomb. And God, we thank you for inviting us into the glorious honor of partnering together and partnering with you in the greatest commission in eternity. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see one another and eyes to see the world around us and boldness to speak and break the silence with our actions and with our words. God, may we be a community that invites others in to experience this gospel of grace, to experience the look on your face and the warmth of your embrace and the people around us, not because we're perfect, but because we're perfectly loved. Thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you guys can stand for worship.